This is The Jewish Frame, a Jewish podcast about movies and a movie podcast about Jewishness. I am Ben Chin. I'm Rabbi Dan Ain. And this evening, we are talking about crimes and misdemeanors. Yes. 1989 film directed by Woody Allen. So um, I guess the first question is, is it a misdemeanor for us to be discussing this film? Well, okay. You want to get into that already? <laughs> I think we have to like do yeah, it up so front. Yeah, so Woody Allen. Let's talk about Woody Allen. I'd see. Yeah, okay. Do it. You, Little you bit. lead. Okay. So his reputation has suffered, uh, I would say, over the past know, 20 some odd years, really. Probably started when he married his ex-partner's daughter when she was 19, I think. <laughs> That was already a little weird, but people were like, okay, that's a little weird, but okay. And uh, then, I think in 92, he was accused, well, he's a, he was accused of an instance of molesting his yes. daughter, yeah. Dylan Farrow, that's right. um, in, in 1992, and that was picked up by... Ronan Farrow, who is his son, it's all very weird. The whole thing is weird. He's been accused in print. Ronan Farrow is a journalist and hasn't been convicted of anything and denies uh, that allegation. But a lot of people have found it credible. A lot of people in Hollywood have stayed away from him, don't want to work with him. And I, mean, I was thinking about Woody Allen. This is a guy, he makes a movie every year. He's made a movie every year since the 1970s. He just keeps doing it. And a lot of them lose money. Some of them break even. Some of them make money. But even the ones that make money, they don't make million. You know, they don't, they don't make you know, $100 million. They're small investments. They're small investments. And, you know, some of them return on that investment probably four, five, six times. But since they're small investments to begin with, you're not talking about blockbuster movie money. But he always finds people to finance his films. Generally, they cost under $20 million to make. It's not very much. And actors want to work with him. Actors want to work with him. I think a lot of actors will just work for scale to be in a Woody Allen movie. And he's a guy that has been able to survive and make movies of a pretty high quality purely based on his reputation, really. And now that reputation is shot. Yeah. Pretty much. Still makes movies. Yeah. With a, you know, not with the kind of movie stars he used to be able to make movies with. Um, and frankly, I haven't seen, I used to see, I used to go see every anything goes or match point or whatever, you know, whatever he, you know, the musical ones actually did really well. I used to go see those, you know, just whatever the Woody Allen movie was of the year. Well, there were several thousand people in New York. Like like me. That's (laughs) right. LA. That's right. A few other places where there were Jews. 
who would just, you know, if there was a new Woody Allen movie, you'd go see the new Woody yeah, Allen Yeah, I, you know, I guess I'm responsible for choosing this movie, right? I This was a movie that I wanted to choose because this was a movie I think I've mentioned previously. I got into films pretty heavy in the late 90s and uh, very much into the whole sort of Woody Allen... Irv? Irv, yes. Um, and... Uh, this movie, I just think, really stuck with me. Um, even before I started rabbinical school and went into rabbinical studies as being a poignant movie, I'll talk about whether or not I still find it poignant 25 years later. But dealing with the basic concepts of morality, good and evil, questions of choices, the idea of you know whether or not uh, there is anybody watching, is there ultimate justice in the world or is it all just chaos those are questions obviously that led me to become a rabbi so to see a filmmaker engaging with them with humor was very appealing to me now i you know i think what you say about woody allen is well taken and i can't speak to any of that but i think we still can talk about this movie as as it existed as a part of jewish film history and i i think it's worthwhile to have that discussion so let's get into crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, one, it won best picture. It won best screenplay. It was the I think his only win. Is that correct? His only Oscar win for writing. I don't know that it won best screenplay. Oh, I'm making that up. You're making that up because I know what did win best screenplay. <laughs> okay, why? Why do I even bother? Why um, don't you tell me what did win best screenplay? And it was the only category for which this film was nominated okay. that year. Was do the right thing. Screenplay. Screenplay was the only category in which I mean, Do the Right do Thing the right is a heck thing of a movie, for sure. Was but nominated, this screenplay, which is, and this yeah. was not a super tough year. I mean, if you look at, at, at uh, the movies that were nominated, I think, mm, oh, I remember what won Best Movie, Driving Miss Daisy. Oh, boy. So it was not a super competitive year. And yeah, some movies that deserve to be better recognized were not. I think it's a solid script. It's too short. So the script is too I was struck by how sparse. short this movie is. Yeah. I am I when I went to watch it, I was like, oh my gosh, this movie's gotta be at least two hours long. And it's like a very brisk hour forty. With two completely separate plot lines, with these really deep themes and and a lot of stuff. And and yeah, it's I mean I kind of appreciated the fact that it was so I found it unsatisfying. So go, okay. <laughs> let's start. Okay. So, well, look, I, I'll sort of um, give a synopsis and then we can dig in. And the synopsis is pretty simple. There are two completely separate storylines linked by Rich. a central character. Yeah. yeah. Storyline number one is Martin Landau plays Judah Rosenthal, who is a very successful ophthalmologist he's got a, a beautiful wife played by claire bloom sadly doesn't really have anything to do um he's got a beautiful daughter who is engaged to somebody who seems like a very nice young man um he's got the world on a string and he's even got a mistress played by angelica houston problem is he's done with a mistress but the mistress is not done with him so it's sort of a fatal attraction kind of scenario He's trying to wind things down, and she's getting more and more and more upset and not willing to let him go and keeps threatening to 
tell his wife, actually does write a letter to the wife, which, which he finds and destroys before the wife gets to see it. And, and also, she's aware of some financial improprieties that he's been involved in. He moved some money around between his, you know, charities to get him out of a fix with his personal finances. I mean, it was all paid back and everything's fine. But there's some stuff that she knows that she's also threatening to expose him for that he also doesn't want to see happen. So he calls his brother, Jerry Orbach, who is I this... thought he's really good in this movie. Oh, Orbach's great. Yeah. Um, so understated. I, but I thought very good. Very like, this is what the brother of this ophthalmologist... Like, very believable as brothers. Yeah. yeah. Oh, they look like <laughs> Very, yeah. like, I totally bought great casting. Oh, yeah. Great casting. Um, and the brother is this wise guy. Basically, sort of a low look seems like a didn't have the brains of his brother and had to make it the harder way. Yeah. Yeah. Seems like a kind of small time hood. Right. And uh, the brother says, well, you know, I can have her taken care of. And after a lot of sort of objecting, finally, Martin Landau picks up the phone and says, go ahead, make it happen. The mistress is murdered. Martin Landau Actually, Judah Rosenthal, he goes to her apartment, he sees her dead, he takes a couple of things, pictures of him, whatever, away with him, he... The only interestingly filmed scene in the movie. I don't know if you disagree with me on Well, let's talk, we can talk about the the kind of filmic aspects, because it's sort of interesting. Um... So he, he's, you know, disturbed for a while. He's moody. He's, he's all, you know, upset. He wants uh, to turn himself wants in. Wants to turn himself in. Uh, but then he gets over it. Um, and, well, and is fine. And earlier on, when, he's, when he was still trying to figure out what to do, he consulted with one of his patients, who is this rabbi called Ben, really? Sam Waterston. I, I, the wor- uh, poor, most poorly drawn character in the movie. But well, go he's on. just a saint. He's I mean, a, he's a saint. saint, exactly. Right? Exactly. And of course, he gives him the right advice, which yes. is, well, you go to your wife that's and you tell right. her and you hope for the best. That's right. Um, of course, that's not what he ends up doing. But I mention that especially because this rabbi, his sister is um, married to a guy called Cliff Stern, played by Woody Allen, who is the, the protagonist of the other whole plot. He is a documentary filmmaker. He makes these little documentaries that nobody watches. <laughs> He's... Um, I think he won second prize, right? Yeah. he won, No, he wins honorable mention honorable in me. this festival, which he, he keeps saying, <laughs> but apparently everybody who showed up gets honorable mention. <laughs> his wife is completely done with him. They are in a loveless marriage. They haven't had sex in like o- almost a year. The marriage is clearly nearing the end. Um, he's at a loose end. And, and his uh, wife's brother wants him to break brother, it off um, with well, yes, Cliff. Yes. All right, you go, her you other too. brother, uh, the rabbi's one brother, her other brother is uh, um, named Lester. He is a very successful TV producer. He produces like sitcoms and stuff that's maybe not the highest quality, but clearly very, very popular. And the sister asks him to help out cliff and so he hires cliff to make like a, a sort of like american masters yeah, type exactly. documentary that's going to be on TV <laughs> about him and um and so cliff does that and in making that movie meets a um producer on it uh, who's played by mia farrow 
and Cliff falls for her and attempts to woo her unsuccessfully. And um, Lester. Lester leaps in and they end up being engaged. And at the end of the movie, the rabbi's daughter is married. The rabbi is blind by this time. That's oh, we'll why he get, was, oh, we'll get to yeah, that. That's why he was seeing the ophthalmologist. We'll but he that. is happy. And um, at the, the very, almost the very last scene of the movie is um, Cliff Stern, Woody Allen's character, is sitting alone. And the, the Martin Landau character. Uh, walks into the room, and um, he starts telling his story, saying, "Hey, I've got a you're a movie maker. I got a movie idea for you, a guy who." And he starts telling his story, and then at the and and you know it cuts away from him, and then it goes back, and Willie Allen says, "Well, that's horrible. <laughs> I mean, if he gets away with it and is able to live with himself and sleep at night and feel okay, well, then his worst." fears are realized. We live in a godless, cruel, cold world uh, in, in which there is no moral center. And Martin Landau says, well, I told you it was, it was kind of a dark story. And the Woody Allen character is like, well, I can't. That doesn't seem right. What about this other ending? Um, what if he turns himself in? Well, He's that's like, no. Hollywood. Yeah, he says, you've seen too many movies. And that's that's sort of the end of the movie yeah um well done well done uh what do you think the moral of the story is well the moral of the story is laid out actually spelled out in the the very very end of the film meanwhile um cliff stern has been all the time working on this documentary about this <laughs> which gives philosopher. you which gives you the best comedic reel the best comedic reel comes as his cut. His cut of the American Masters. Oh no, no, not well. Yeah, is well, the best the comedic Masters, reel of the movie. Yes, but while he's doing the American Masters thing, he's also making this other small documentary on about Leonard this, Leonard Levy, this philosophy professor yes. who's played by this guy, I think Martin Freeman or something, who's an actual psychology professor at Columbia. Oh, okay. so not an actor. That guy, he was an actual academic that asked to play this philosopher who was a um, Holocaust survivor and, you know, witnessed all the horrors and came back and, and talks about how people are able to live and in a, what seems like a very cruel world. And the end, <laughs> he dies during the, the... Spoiler alert. In, in spoiler alert, the guy that he's spending all this time making this movie about and about this guy's life-affirming message uh, Three quarters of the way through the movie, commit suicide, and he leaves a note which says, "He <laughs> that says I went out the window." And yeah, um, Woody Allen's very upset about that. So he, but he, the the last line of the movie is him saying that even though the world seems like a cruel and cold and meaningless place, we are able to take joy in the little things in our relationships and the people around us and the beauty of nature and so on. And that's how we are able to make meaning out of what seems meaningless. Right. And that seems to be the moral of the movie is that, well, we are on our own, but there is no moral center, but we, people are able. 
to create a meaningful existence, uh, even given so little. That's something you agree with, no? I think it's... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not hard to... That there is no that there is no meaning at the heart of the universe. That ultimately there is no purpose. There is no point. It's only what we make of it, whether we choose to murder our mistresses or whether we choose to make documentary films about professors. Yeah, I think that sums up my (laughs) philosophy. I don't think we're handed a a moral uh, compass which always points true north. I do think that we do have to make our own meaning. It's it's not a super deep and profound no. point of view, but that's I think the point of view that we're supposed to take away from the movie. On watching this, and it's been the first time I've watched this, and and, and a good bit, I am struck by my affinity for Alan Alda's character. Oh, he's so great. And I almost felt, watching it now, that it's a trick. That Woody Allen's sort of characterization of Lester as a buffoon, a superficial commercial guy who doesn't have any substance to him. I, I think watching that now, I, I mean, maybe I bought in, into it 25 years ago, but watching that now, it, it's clear to me that it's just Woody Allen's animus that colors the whole scene. And at the end of the movie, Mia Farris says, well, you don't know him like he really is. And I think he's been presented by Willie, Woody Allen in such a way because he can't hear the music and that i think this idea and we're gonna have to talk about this of the sense of hearing and the sense of sight comes through very pronounced for me throughout this movie obviously judah is an ophthalmologist he begins talking about the eyes of god are always watching the eyes of judgment are always watching upon him and so he has to grapple with this baggage from the Pesach Seder, which we can talk about, he has to grapple with this baggage in order to, I guess, come to terms with the fact that it's probably more convenient for him to off his mistress than to actually do teshuva. And so he he has to sort of sort that out, and he decides to do away with it. But there is something about the Jewish, (laughs) I mean, this is self-serving on my part, but the Jewish priority of the sense of hearing. So. What does Moses say? Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Just in last week's Torah portion, Moses says, Oh God, let me see you. I want to see you, right? We have this. The people of Israel, they're so despondent because they can't see Moses. They can't see God. So they create a golden calf that they can see and hold on to. And even Moses wants to see God and Moses says, well, I'll put you in this little cleft of this mountain and you can see God my... God says that. Yes, God says that you can see my backside. Uh, so there's this real ambivalence around th- our sense of sight that I think is inherent in our tradition and in our theology. And I know people can disagree with me about that, but that's fine. Uh, and I think you see Judah, ophthalmologist, using his eyes 
you see Woody Allen, documentary filmmaker with his sense of sight. And then that is contrasted by the only character in the movie who says, you have to think with your ear. He says it explicitly. It's not a mistake. Woody Allen put that into the screenplay. Alan Alda's character is telling those who work for him they have to learn to think with their ear because if they only think with their eyes, they'll miss the story. Yeah. That's complicated a little bit. <laughs> by? By the fact that Martin Lando's character is also kind of an audiophile. Oh, Schubert Yeah, and she's Schumann. big into Schubert. crap. That's just garbage. I, I think that... <laughs> what do you mean it's garbage? I mean, well, it's... I don't know anything about Schubert. So tell me, do you? No, but it's not really. I've heard Schubert, but it's... it's <laughs> well, isn't put... that what an ophthalmologist who lives on the Upper East Side would listen yeah, to? Yeah, but he could be into Picasso. But he's not in Picasso. Fair enough. He's into Schubert. Okay, fair right? enough. So... That's a critique of Woody Allen's script. Correct. So there is... The thing yes. with the ear with him. Now, it's not the dominant thing for him. It's not the way he makes his living. It's not what he's so fixated on. But it is it is there. And But maybe his ear is not very strong. I, I don't he know. He doesn't no, no. have the ear for faith. In fact, when they have that whole scene... They- yes, they compare... Yes. So... I mean, if we're going to talk about the most Jewish scene in this movie, Do it, Go it right is ahead. definitely the Seder. No question. It's sort of a weird scene. He's having this, the, he's he having this moment his... of crisis. Yes. Okay, you explain. Yeah, after the, the, the murder, while he's still feeling unbalanced. He goes back to his old house. He goes he back to his old family home, who know, you know, in Queens or wherever. Exactly. It kind of looks like Queens, doesn't it? it? Exactly. And he walks in and... He either yes, the owner, the woman there to, to, to give him a minute, and he conjures up this memory of his family having a Seder dinner at the table. It must have been 1949, it, is my guess. Probably, yes. And his, um, well, I'm assuming he's post, Woody Allen's It's, it's post-Holocaust, it's post-Holocaust, yeah, but not well, too far. Woody Allen was born in 1935, so I'm assuming that Judah is kind of the same age. Yeah. Um, which would put, you know, around that time about right. So um, the whole family's there. His father is there at the head of the table and his father is talking about God and the eyes of God and and how we do live in a moral universe created by the Almighty and his aunt May. Who is best described as a Hannah Arendt character extraordinaire? Uh, yeah. I mean, she's clearly the smartest person. The in that smartest world. person at no the question. table, and you know, chain smoking yeah. like Hannah Arendt, yes. absolutely, and not a great beauty, <laughs> um, but but clearly respected by everybody there. She's a school teacher, I, I think you're you're given to believe, and she starts holding for, forth about it's all nonsense, it's all mumbo jumbo. There's no God. There are no rules. It's only what you can get away with. And look what happened in Europe. That is proof positive that not only is there no God, but that people will do terrible things and many of them will get away with it and never be bothered by it again. So basically the movie's written by the ant. Uh, well, no, because she's just bitter. She doesn't even seem to find 
joy in life anymore. She, I, she seems broken by and, the whole thing. And then at some point, oh, I forget, maybe you remember who, which character it says, you know, he has, you know, he has an ear for faith. There's nothing you He could... has a gift. Yes, thank you. Who says that? For, um, one, of the other, one of his other sisters, it seems like, another aunt. Who says who's sitting there with her? What are husband. you talking about? You go to shul, right? He says right, right. no, well, but the, yeah, the uncle, another uncle says, yeah, I'm not with you on everything, but I agree with you on the whole mumbo jumbo thing. And yeah, the father says, what are you, what are you, what are you talking about? You go to shul, you pray, you say the words, and he's like, yeah, but I'm going through the motions. And his the, the little wife sitting next to him says that the uh, Judah's father. He has a gift. Faith is, it's a gift, like an ear for music. And I like, I, I like that. I also, I, I also agree with the father, to some degree. I have to choose between truth and God? I will choose, I will always choose God. Why I think you, that's very powerful you, too. Tell me why you agree with that. Because he admits that it is a choice. And that it may not be the truth, but that it is still a choice worth making. And it is still the only choice that he feels that he can make, even if, even if it's not the truth. It's important enough and central enough to who he is and what he's about that it's more important than truth. And I think that's very powerful as well. But Judah doesn't follow. No, and he's haunted by his father, and he keeps having these visions even be- before that, all the way through the film until that point. He has these visions of the shul, and of the the rabbi, and whoever else sitting in front of this yeah, portrait. And yeah. it's this is you would never see that in a synagogue, <laughs> no. would you? No, not anymore. sitting in front of this portrait of it's out of a Da Vinci or. Some, maybe not even. It's, the, it's the, the picture of the wrathful God personified with the white hair and the angry face. It is a representation that you would never find in any Jewish house of worship, in any Jewish home. I have to go back and look at it. I, have to, I, I, I don't even know if I saw it. I so, don't even know if I saw it. So it's clearly manufactured. And... and sort of surreal almost because it's it is so out of place that when he thinks of his religious tradition he thinks of that angry wrathful god that's the, and it's a picture it's a picture of the angry wrathful god that he sees and that i suppose he has rejected because maybe that's the only image of god that he can conjure up do you buy that he's cool? Do you buy that he got over it and he's able to move on? I mean, that seems... Yeah, I think you have to buy it. You have to buy it. Otherwise, there's no... It doesn't make sense. Well, that's my problem. It, does, it doesn't make psychological sense. I mean, that's right. That, but that's what Judah would say. Oh, you're living in a movie. That's Hollywood, Rabbi. Oh, I think... I, what I don't buy is all the hand-wringing. That's what I don't. Oh, buy. you don't buy his hand. Or no, it no. is performative, even with Jerry Orbach. It's extremely go- performative, yeah. right? He calls his brother. Yes, he knows. Oh, is there something you could do? Yeah. Oh, what are you talking about? How dare you? How much? Yeah, he knows why he's calling him. 
He knows he's already there. He's already gotten to the end of that conversation before the conversation even starts. So he knows what he wants to happen. And then when it happens, I'll tell you what I think a lot of this movie is about and what ties together that character and Lester. The thing those guys have in common, one comically and one tragically, is an enormous amount of self-regard. That's, you know... That's their key trait. That is their key trait. Judah Rosenthal... Knows eyes and Lester knows ears. You got it. Yeah. And he says, uh, when he's talking about why he cannot tell his wife, well, I can't tell her. She'll be crushed. She idolizes me. What he cannot bear is to diminish himself in the eyes of the people around him. That's what he oh, cannot very bear. Very good. Very good. Um, and, you know, the eyes as well. Very good. Right? No, that's right. And it's, it's the because, perception. Yeah. And everybody around him tells him how wonderful he is all the time. The movie opens with him being honored at this big snooty, snooty hospital do gala. Right for this new wing that he's helped raise the money for and is operating in, and from that moment on, just everybody's everybody's propping him up. Even the mistress talks about how yes, she, he, yeah, she, and she was a low point, and she tur- he turned her life around, and that's why yeah, he can't I, she can't bear to lose him. So I, I mean, Angelica Houston, I think, is a tremendous actor. Yeah, uh, she gets, but she rough, this role, you know. this role is not fully human. It's not fully yeah. fleshed out at all. It's hard to you can't really sympathize with her. Well, they don't make her. Uh, you, it, she she's a one. I mean, she's she's just one note. Right? Uh, she's, she's not even. It's just a thing. She. I mean, you see her totally as a as a plaything for Judah, and she has no independent personality, and she falls apart without him. I mean, it's really not a compelling character. No, I mean it's like Glenn Close and Fatal Attraction. I mean, you, you, it's the odds. The whole story and everything about it is stacked against her. You're you're n- never really invited to really see things from her point of view she's just an obstacle and even angelica houston who's i mean she's great i mean in the hands of a lesser actress it would be a lot worse i think well i think he benef- i mean i think woody allen benefits from it, the actors in this movie i don't think there's any question about it. yeah but even oh, yeah. with angelica houston yeah everything is is stacked against her and when she is murdered you can't really feel sorry for her. I mean, I tried. I maybe did a little bit, but you're not. It's very difficult to really sympathize with her and, and feel that badly when she is murdered because she's so clearly just annoying yeah well she's just there to provide a moral dilemma for our protagonist which is bullshit that's right which is yeah weakness yes (laughs) of of the of the screenplay yeah yeah absolutely uh i agree with you and a little bit the same with mia farrow 
Well, at least plot. she is. Pre- I mean, at least they give her a brain. They, she's much cooler than anyone else in the movie. You know, she went to law school. She dropped out. She lived in Europe. They give her a backstory. They don't give Dolores any of that backstory at all. No. Not, you know, she's but I know that Mia Farrow's character is this cool producer who's, you know, got her own thing going on and. She puts herself in weird circumstances that are questionable from time to time, but she can take care of herself. Yeah. I think she's also sort of a non-person. I mean, again, you don't really care about her very much. She ends up with with Woody Allen. She ends up with less. Well, she's the object of desire in the movie to the two main protagonists. Yes. I mean, she's not a bimbo. You know, she's set up as being you know, a real person, but you're just kind of told And that. you're presented, Cliff is the guy, the real guy, the auteur with the integrity. <laughs> well, that's the thing. And Lester is this Benito Mussolini character who hits on everybody that comes across. That is and, kind of my favorite scene oh, in the movie. The <laughs> and he's, he's showing, he's done the, the documentary about Lester and all the way through it, he's like grimacing and rolling his eyes every time Lester opens his mouth. And then finally, they're in the screening room, and he's showing it to him. And he's t- taken all Lester's stupidest stuff he's Mr. ever seen. Mr. Ed. He cuts it, intercuts it with footage of Benito Mussolini at a rally, and of, of not even Mr. Ed. It wasn't um, Mr. Francis Ed. Francis the Talking Mule. Oh, excuse I me. Think. Wow. Uh, even worse. <laughs> And, uh, of course, Lester says, what is this? Stop it. This is, this is terrible. You're fired. Which, of course, he's going to say. I mean, and, and, and my, you know. And, uh, it's, it's really yeah. funny. And then it's the next really scene funny. is another one of my favorite lines is when he's talking to me at Farrow. And he goes, I don't know what the guy's so upset about. You'd think no one had ever been compared to Mussolini before. <laughs> Oh, yeah, he says, I love him like a brother, David Greenglass. That's another That's another throwaway line that they have in there. You know, he still has his one-liners in there. Yes, but he's not, I mean, in most of Woody, not maybe not most, in many of Woody Allen's movies, he is the romantic hero. He is the person that you really are supposed to sympathize that, with. Very who, good. Who, who very you, good. This who, isn't Annie Hall. It's no. A, and in fact, he uses Annie Hall to misdirect you, I think. Um, you know, yeah, it's not, it's not like those movies. The character that he plays here is uh, weak and bitter and envious and unsuccessful in every possible way that you can imagine. Now, he doesn't try to paper over that. I, he, he lets that character be a real, not just a nebbish, but a loser. A, a complete loser who, in the one chance he has to make any kind of professional success, sabotages himself because he would rather give a middle finger to this guy That's right. who he can't stand because he's so successful. That's he right. He would rather do that than actually try and move his own career forward. And you can't, I don't think, there's not many ways that you can see that kind of behavior as anything but dumb. It's odd that he throws that into this, he throws that as the B plot into this A plot. 
It's interesting. This movie's, yeah. I mean, I, I was thinking about why this structure. Yeah. What do you think? Well, I think if you look at, you know, I was looking at Woody Allen's filmography. I mean, first of all, again, I was struck by just the quantity. He's made, I mean, an IMDb has 57 directing credits. And like a couple of those are like TV things or something, but almost all of them are real feature length theatrical release movies. 57. He has a formula. Um, well, he does and he doesn't. He does different things at different times. Um, he has an astonishing initial run. Um, he does like Sleeper. Well, yeah, in the 70s, and I mean, he was huge. Uh, you know, we don't have to undersell how popular of a leading man he was in the 70s. Right, but he has that, he has that string. Interiors. Well, no, I'm saying even before that. I'm saying in the early, in the 70s. Bananas. Yeah, bananas, take the money and run, sleeper, everything you want to know about sex, and that whole run kind of ends with Annie Hall, and it's just hit after hit after hit, and movies that just keep getting better and better and better, until Annie Hall, and then a couple years after that- Annie Hall wins Best Picture? Yeah, Annie Hall wins Best best, uh, uh, Oscar for Best Picture. And then a couple of years after that, he does Manhattan, which was also- I think not as successful as Annie Hall, but but also successful. And Considered his best, I believe, in hindsight, probably. Well, again, it now no, is I'm a little tainted, say, yeah. you know, well, by the fact that, that it's he's dating a seventeen. The whole movie is about his his desire for this high well, school. I still Mariel Hemingway is excellent in that movie. But she okay. is great, but it's a little. Yes. looking back, it's a hard it's a harder rewatch now, certainly. But it's, I mean, drop dead beautiful as a movie. I mean, to look at and the score. And and just as a as a just piece of filmic art, it's it's amazing. Um, and so he does all these movies, and then he starts doing stuff like Interiors and Another Woman. He does these like serious Selig, movies. and he's got that one the Stardust he does Memories. Selig. Um, well, then he has another run, which uh, in the maybe late seventies into the eighties. Uh, of like he does Zelig, he does Broadway Danny Rose, he does um, Radio Days, a um, couple of other movies. Also, another string of really successful comedies. Bullets over Broadway. That's later. That's much later. That's after this movie. Um, yeah, and then he does I think a couple of serious movies. And there's sort of a break, and then he does this movie, and then he does like another kind of movie that don't really go anywhere, and, and then he goes on to something else. So this movie is sort of, it, well, I guess what I'm saying is it's not part of a sort of run. He's so freaking hit or miss. He's like very, out of nowhere, he'll do something great, you know, it seemed like, and then he'll follow it up with these awful, you know, French... French well, he wanted to be Birdman 80, for a while. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. Interior, I don't know. I, ha- I saw Interiors once. I don't think I have any. Well, I mean, look. Hannah and Her Sisters is a good movie. You missed that starting one. Starting in 83, he does Zelig, Broadway Danny Rose, uh, Purple Rose of Cairo, Purple. Hannah and Her Sisters, Radio Days. I mean, that's a pretty impressive string of movies. And they were all successful and all good movies. And then he does like September and Another Woman. And he does, he does that New York Stories thing. He's got like a, you know, that sort of anthology thing. Um, and then he does Crimes and Misdemeanors in 89. And then he does a few 
weird movies like Alice and you doesn't know, he have a Jason Biggs Shadows musical and in there? Fog and some weird stuff and 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 then Bullets Over Broadway in '94 is his next yeah. sort of success. Yeah. So, but this is sandwiched. What I'm saying is this is sort of like sandwiched in between sort of different periods of his. And I what it struck me is that he does he goes between these sort of comedies and these sort of serious movies. And I think what he's trying to do, which is really, really hard, and when he's really good with, let's say, Annie Hall, he's, what I think what he's going for is what, for, for films that are really funny and really poignant. I think he wants to be Charlie Chaplin. Because Charlie Chaplin had that. He had stuff that was really funny and then the next moment, pathos, right? In, in equal measure. Uh, Buster Keaton, too, actually. Uh, and even though Woody Allen, I think his style is more Groucho Marx in terms of him as a performer, certainly, and the way that he writes, I think he is going back to that other silent tradition of, of trying to do both those things and he goes and in some movies he just hits it and he's able to do both um and at other times he's ping-ponging back and forth he makes a movie that's just funny like broadway danny rose is just i mean it's just funny and then he'll go do september or another woman or something that's supposed to be just really full of pathos and poignant and in this movie he doesn't do either of those things right he doesn't meld them together and doesn't make a movie that's one or the other, he takes... He, oh, it's he, so he, Jewish. It's he, like the most Jewish movie. It's like more Jewish than any hall. I mean, it's just so Jewish here. What's well, about... It's, a, it's, a, it's about theology and morality. Well, that's and, obviously why I chose it. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask more you... more Jewish scene than any other... I want to you know. ask you about Woody Allen's sister and that one cameo scene. Oh, my gosh. And I want to know what it's doing in the movie. Okay, so this is a scene where he's, um, oh, so he's got, throughout the movie, there's this other thing that not only is he bouncing back and forth between these two plots, but often the bridge is a movie clip. His niece. Right. So he's, often you'll get, um, uh, there'll be a scene. And, Murder, she said. Right, 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 right. And then it'll cut to, I don't even know what these movies are. These old 40s I know, I thought maybe you knew, yeah. Movies. Um, and and that'll be the bridge, and then it'll you'll see that he's watching the movie with his niece, or in one case with actually Mia Farrow. They're out um, uh, eating their burgers at the movie theater. So <laughs> that's the only thing I love about that character. That's the only thing to me that is sympathetic about uh, Woody Allen's character is that he really loves movies, to, you know, and he goes and he watches movies in the middle of the day. That I identify with absolutely. But that's about it. So. And, and yeah, a lot of times he's going to see him with his niece. She's like 14 years old. He's telling her about his like love life and stuff. He's, oh, he's like, yeah, he's telling his niece how he's divorcing his wife. He's like, I'm crazy about this woman. Yeah, I mean, but I'm, I'm married, married. So it's not so great. Yeah, it's inappropriate. <laughs> it's clearly inappropriate. But he has this relationship with his niece, which I think is supposed to humanize him or something. <laughs> yeah, but in hindsight, it doesn't work. It doesn't really work. And the mother, his sister. Yes. Um, has one he, he takes the Yeah, he takes the niece home. And the, the nieces and the mother's like, you need to go do your homework. And she goes and does her homework and closes the door. And then the mother, his sister, breaks down in tears. And he's like, what's wrong? 
And this is the other thing that's terrible about the Woody Allen character. And he, she tells him this story about how she goes on a blind date. She has to use the personals. It's important. It's, it's not insignificant. She has right. to. She's alone, and I she's think this lonely. idea of loneliness. Yes. And when you talk about Professor Levy at the end, talking about love and the search for love, well, here she is searching for love in the personals. Yes. And this is what it looks like searching for love. Yes. Yeah, you searches, get shit on in your bedroom. Literally, she brings this guy home. They end up in a bedroom. He ties her up um, and uh, then defecates on her. And, and Woody leaves. Allen is, is repulsed and mortified. And what is the thing? The first thing he says to her? You oh. dummy. How could you be so stupid? She is opening her heart to him about this horrible, traumatizing thing that has happened to her. And... He just throws it in her he's face. He's disgusted. He's an asshole. And he's disgusted by it. It's yeah. the worst, the worst yeah. bedside manner yeah. imaginable. He just covers his face and says, oh my God, that's the worst thing I've ever heard. <laughs> that's right. Literally says, that's the worst thing I've ever heard. So yeah. He's, <laughs> Which is hilarious. Yeah, it's hilarious, but he's, he's not helpful. But what is, so I, what, I think. No, I, I think you're right. It's, yeah. it's, she's, and she says, I'm just so lonely. And there's no, you know, what can I, you know. What, what am I supposed to do? And yeah, I maybe, maybe it's there to just show even in, in that plot as well, that the world is just, it's a lonely, cold sort of well, it's place. As, you, as I was listening to you, I thought, well, she could have dated Judah and gotten murdered. No. He was a married man. I don't think she, was, she would be into that. What? I mean, she could have dated Judah and gotten married, right? She was lonely. I think there is a, <laughs> I think there is a crossover between Dolores and the sister. Because Dolores is lonely as well. That's right. And she's willing to put up with a, you know, an adulterous murderer ophthalmologist as like the love of her life. I think it's like, it's their slim pickings out there. It's a harsh world and it's full of danger and you get murdered or you could get defecated on or you could find a Mia Farrow. Right. But Cliff finds her and doesn't do him any good. Because he sucks. Yeah. And she knows How he it. He has but any she knows it. Yes, yeah. I, I admire. So that, I mean, that's a classic She's Woody Allen. She's out of his league. That's a classic so Woody Allen trait is you do admire his gumption to hit on girls way out of his well, league. Well, that's what I like about this movie is usually he is with these women who are way out of his league and it works. I mean, in many of his movies, he is ends up with the Mia Farrow or the Diane, Diane Keaton, Keaton or these, you know, Scarlett Johansson uh, or whatever the heck. Right? Well, he wasn't. That wasn't him. But, <laughs> Nonetheless, um, and yes, in this movie, that does not happen. He, he it's that 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 woman remains out of his league, and it's like, yes, she goes instead with the tall, handsome, successful guy. Who's fun to be around? Not with the short, nebbishy loser who's a drag. And an existentialist. And an existentialist. And nobody who, wants meanwhile, to Meanwhile, is also spending most of his time talking about uh, how much he hates the tall, successful, good-looking guy. And he's not an existentialist, which is what comes back to how you ended the movie. He ends the movie... He gets the total narrative. It's like the player, right? It's like Bob Altman's player, right? He's recapping. He goes, I got a story for you. And it's the movie you just saw, right? That's what it reminds me of, a little bit of that. Uh, but he is dissatisfied with 
I guess a Sartre-esque or, you know, an existentialist-esque story in which the murderer, so long as he can live with it, gets away with it, which would seemingly be in consonance with Woody Allen's philosophy. But when presented with it, he doesn't accept it. And he's Well, caught. he doesn't think it's a good movie, Pop. <laughs> he still made it. <laughs> yeah, but he had to put another story in there as well. If this were just the Judah Rosenthal story, it would be called Match Point. It wouldn't quite. <laughs> yeah. Although Match Point actually did well. Did right? very well. I mean, that's because com- it had a lot of beautiful people in it. It had a lot of beautiful people in it who I think also, I think they actually marketed that movie. That's the other thing. Woody Allen's movies, they tend to just kind of come and go and. If you know about it, and it's at one of the very few movie yeah, theaters it plays that's showing in, it. it plays you know, on Lincoln you? Square at 63rd, yeah. and that's it. And that's there's right. no marketing. That's right. Right? There's no movie stars going on the talk shows talking about it. It's just... No, it's, no, not, it's you know. it is, though, a feather. It used to be a feather in the cap for, like, a ScarJo or somebody to say that they were in a Woody Allen movie. You could use that as, like, you know, well, I'm doing this for scale because I want to work with, you know, blah, blah, blah. That used to be the thing. Yeah, I mean... Martin Landau at this point is um when is Ed Wood when is Ed Wood is that before after Ed Wood is later because 89 is I think Batman is 89 so Ed Wood is is quite a bit because he's so good in Ed Wood yeah that's much later but when was um tucker a man in his dream he won an oscar for that i think that was before this he won an oscar yeah for he tucker? won a best supporting i've never seen tucker. But tucker i think i saw it when it came out it's about the edsel right it's no it's about the tucker it's about i don't think it is the edsel isn't didn't tucker have his had his own i never name? saw it oh I there was tucker another his, there was but it was like an edsel i think it might might have had some it was like an edsel in that it and never he, went anywhere. and and landau won an oscar for that huh Landau won an Oscar. I remember when he won a Best Supporting Oscar for that. When did he die? Long. Landau? Yeah. Not that long ago. I don't remember. I don't think. Well, let me find out. I don't I'll remember. I just remember, pull the string! Pull the string! He's so great. <laughs> that He's movie so amazing. is so amazing. I want to see that. I haven't seen All that right, we can time. do Ed Wood. We absolutely well, I don't know what the Jewish take on that <laughs> film is. But that's um, a movie in love with movies, oh if ever there God. was one, and in love with movie makers. Um, so good. All right, Martin Landau died in 2017. So, so I, I, I want to tell you, I'm not putting this in the canon, and I was, con- I was convinced I would put this in the canon. <laughs> Look at him; he's so upset at me. <laughs> I, I, I feel it's incomplete. Tucker was 88. Tucker I was the, fe- not, the I year before. I feel it's incomplete. I feel it's an incomplete movie, and I don't think it has to be. That was my, I was totally shocked at my takeaway of it. Not, I, I just, I think it could be left off the canon. I don't think it has to be there. I think you can find another Jewish expression of existentialism that would be superior to this one. <laughs> not everybody loves this movie. Yeah, I, yo, so tell I me. I did mention to you Pauline Kale's review. Tell me, what did it say? She says... It's so paper thin that I think I can be left out of the canon. That's, that, that's kind of... But I mean, 
he makes it entertaining. And I mean, how much existentialist philosophy can be made entertaining for 90 minutes? I don't know. I'll tell you what she says. Yeah. Pauline Kael says, the tediousness of Woody <laughs> Allen's attempt to deal with weighty questions yeah. is that he poses them in conventional sermonizing terms. So yeah, Pauline Kael uh, did not care. Yeah, I don't like one. the Levy character either. And I'm sure that she doesn't like it. Uh, the Levy character is garbage. Uh, it doesn't, it, I didn't, it does, what is he, what's his philosophy? What is Levy's philosophy? The, his philosophy is that we couldn't conceive of a God that didn't also hate us, right? That didn't also. We could not conceive of a truly loving and caring God. That's what he says. Which means what? Which means that we, we accept that the world is a cruel place and that there is no real moral center, that that is the human condition, and it always has been. And our task is to navigate through that, to find the things that give our life meaning. That's his, that's his take. It's like, um, what's his name? Mordechai Kaplan. Not Mordechai Kaplan, the guy who wrote um, uh, Victor Frankl. Victor Frankl. It's basically Victor Frankl. It's that the same the same thing. That's that. But he's cuter. Who's cuter? Levy. Is Levy's cute. cuter. Yeah, he is kind. He's got those big glasses. He's very cute. Okay, so you don't you wouldn't you wouldn't put this? No, in. I I I um I was certain I was going to put this in the canon, but. It's well, I guess so, it has to be so, unanimous, so it's not. Well, it. it's so paper thin that I I found it too short, too quick. Judah just gets over it, and it's fine. I was unsatisfied with the conclusion of it. Well, also, I mean, I say we talk about sort of the the visual style. This um, all of Woody Allen's early movies, not all, but most of them, certainly Annie Hall and Manhattan. And uh, a lot of the movies in his early period, which he's best known. Those, the, the cinematographer for those was Willis, Gordon Willis, who uh, was the cinematographer on The Godfather. Heavy hitter uh, uh, as a director of photography. And very painterly, I would say, in his style. Also, uh, I think because of his work on The Godfather, became known as the Prince of Darkness because of, you know, all that low-light photography. Um, but his stuff is just beautiful. I mean, like I said, sort of painterly, right? It's, it's not really is he Manhattan? or Yeah, he did Manhattan, Annie Hall, uh, a lot of... What is, who's the DP here? DP here is a guy called Sven Nickfist, who is a Swedish... Cinematographer who worked a couple of films with Ingrid Bergman, um, also a bunch of other people, but he is known for his realism, and I think you see that here. I it, I was I don't know hoping expecting going back to it for more of a noir feel around the Martin Landau stuff. It's just that one, and it's not there. 
Just that one scene when he goes when he goes back, and well, it's the, the only scene it's that the really sticks out. The camera movement the, and on her face, though. yes, yeah. is is expressive, but every, well, also the tension is like, why the heck is he doing this? Is is very well. They yes, it's the that. very it's one of the very few times that the camera calls attention to itself in any way, um, either in terms of how it's moving, or or how stuff is lit or shot, or framed. And Nick Fist is known as someone who is more of a realist cinematographer, who, because it's not easy to light and frame things and to, to just make it look like there isn't a camera there. That's not easy to make things just feel just sort of normal and real. And, oh, it's, you know, oh, this is inside a ballroom. It looks like you're inside a ballroom. That's not necessarily easy to do that with, with lights and camera, etc. But that's what he does. The camera does not call attention to itself. There's no play of light and shadow and all that stuff. And there's also not really any difference between the way that the Woody Allen portions are shot and the way that the Martin Landau portions are shot. And I think I was expecting that coming into this movie. And... I don't think that might have been a lost opportunity. A, a, a little bit. I mean, there's clearly a tone shift, right, between these two things, but it's not accentuated filmically. And I don't know if that helps or hurts. Would you bit. put this in the. I would. Oh, okay. I would, yeah, because it's so. I'd probably Jewish. choose another Woody Allen it's, movie. I know what Woody Allen movie you, you would choose. You would choose Zelik. Well, <laughs> I mean, that's about as Jewish as it gets, right? It, it this of, is pretty close. I mean, to that's that's this or that. That's more metaphorically, thematically. Yes, who Jewish. is the Jew? Yeah, this is explicitly Jewish. This is about. Jewish family. I just wanted it's more. About- I want. So I'm the stupid rabbi who wants more of the seder. You know, like yeah. I. That's my problem. I want. Like I want a half an hour philosophical discourse. That's my problem. Like you know, like just keep going with the sister. It's good stuff. That could have been a whole thing. Oh, a whole movie unto itself. Yes, it's called Dinner great. with Andre. Exactly. That actually did look a little different. The 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 sort of flashbacky stuff is does have a little bit of a more stylized look to put you in the period. Yeah, um, I think those this that scene. Those conversations are a little more fun too. Yeah, and it looks a little cooler. Yeah, and it's got a little bit more oomph, a little more snap to it. To it, um, and that woman, I don't know who played the the aunt. She's great. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that actress, but yeah, she's terrific. The guy who plays the father, I don't know who that is either. He's also um, everybody. That guy who plays the uncle, I recognize him. <laughs> He's kind of a that guy. Um, it's not Fabish Finkel, but he no, kind of no, looks no. like nobody Fibish. that famous. But he's he's a guy that you recognize. Um, yeah, that scene is 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 great. No, I would I would put it in the canon just because it again it's so Jewish. It's talks about Judaism. And religion. I'm going to put Annie Hall in the camp. I have to choose one movie. I'm going to put Annie Hall in the camp. If you had to... One Woody Allen movie. One Woody Allen. It wouldn't be Zellig. No, it's It would be, be Annie, Annie Hall. Yeah. I haven't seen that movie in a really, that, really I think long time. It's just so, like, quintessentially 
the Jew was having his nebbish moment in the 70s. Movie. Well, that scene of him <laughs> at the dinner table. With Grammy with, Hall. With Grammy Hall. <laughs> And I just, I can't, oh, I can't Grammy. take this movie over that. Mike Grammy, you and Mike Grammy would call a real Jew. Good ham, Grammy. It's good ham. That's, yeah, that is a pretty great movie that I should go back to. But this one, you just felt like too thin. It, ju- it just. A little too obvious, maybe. Didn't hit me at a gut level. Oh, I'd like to hit this guy at a gut level. That's from any. <laughs> I wish Marshall McLuhan was right here. See, I just think that. Annie Hall's a better movie. There's oh, more. Yeah. Ha- there's more heart in it, and I don't know. I just found this was like a nice college essay on existentialism. <laughs> you know that that just didn't. Without Martin Landau and Angelica Houston and Alan Alda, Alan Alda is amazing. Oh yeah, talk to me about how this movie. you had an interesting idea that Alda always plays a likable character. In every movie? Well, no, you were telling me this. You had this idea that Alda does not... Well, he plays bad guys. He has played bad guys. But you always like him. What was the point that you were making? You tell me the point. Well, I just said he steals every scene he's in. I mean, this is what Pauline Kael says. In Pauline Kael's review, she says, Alan Alda is the standout of this film. And really the only saving grace. Oh, she doesn't like Landau. um, Interesting. No, she doesn't love him in this okay. film, but she says, Alan Alda, he steals every scene he's in, which is true. Um, you would, I would just watch that. I would watch him. I would watch the Lester movie. It occurred to me. And when he's, you just held your, had your phone up to your mouth, he does that That's thing what, uh, where he, he, in the middle of a conversation. Idea, idea, idea for, for serious. Yeah, he'll, he'll do that thing. It kind of reminded me of in Play It Again, Sam, there's a character who's the friend who's always calling his service. Do you ever see, there was a movie, um, it wasn't directed by Woody Allen, starred Woody Allen, wasn't directed by him, because it was a play first. Uh, Woody Allen wrote it as a play, it was produced in New York, it was very successful, and then later on somebody, it was made into a movie, somebody else directed it. I think Tony Roberts plays the friend, of course, <laughs> and in every scene that he's in, he, you see him picking up a phone somewhere, I mean, this is of course before cell phones, before voicemail, before answering machines, and he would, every scene, in every scene, he would see him pick up a phone and say, yeah, I'm going to be at this restaurant from uh, 7 until 7.30, and then I'm going to be at this bar from 7.45 until 8.15, and then I'll be home for an hour, and then I'll be, and every scene, he would be calling his service, letting them know where he'd be so that he could be called. And this kind of reminded me a little bit of this, that in every scene that Alan Alda's in, he's like dictating you know, series. So this is what this occurred to me. I was watching the movie and he's holding up his, you know, his, I mean, micro cassette tapes, I guess we're now in 2022. So people don't, people don't remember micro cassette tapes, which was used by my dad was a reporter. So we used to have these around the house all the time. So yeah, dictaphones. And, and it occurred to me, I'm watching this and it's before he gives his line. You have to think with your ear. And it occurs to me, he's an ear guy. He doesn't write anything down. Yeah. He talks. It's about story. It's about idea. He talks into this thing. And then the next line after he talks is you got to think with your ear. I just, it's not, I, I want it more thought out. I want the clash between the eye and the ear 
better developed than it was in this movie because he's just he's on top of it. He's on top of it. And he just it's just it's it, And he's not a bad guy. At the end, he pays for his brother's daughter's wedding. He, no, he's and, he, and, and then he the Mia Farrow, he goes up to her and he well, says if you, He says, Am I I don't know. He says, Am I an asshole? Like Cliff, he just he seems to think that I'm such a jerk. Am I really am I really like that? Look at the men in the movie. You've got No, he doesn't say it to Mia Farrow, he says it to his sister. And of course his sister, like everybody else, says, No, you're wonderful. But look at the men in the movie. You've got Cliff, who's a loser, right? As you as you described. You've got Judah, who's a murderer. Uh, you've got Jerry Orbach. Who's a hood? You've got He's the guy great. who defecates on his sister, and then you have Alan Alda. Alan Alda is shiningly superior to all of those other men. Yeah, he's movie. more or less normal. He just wants to have a good time, and yeah, okay. Sometimes he puts like well, a pretty young woman in his show. The casting so couch thing is is very. Bit, that's the one problem I had with the it's, movie. He's a little sleazy. He's a little sleazy. But he's not a... He settles down at the end. He's not a Weinstein. He's, you know, no, no reason to think that he's uh, He's got that... So in that reel, when the office, he's a little the office light is off and he's hunching over that woman, it's yes, really... It's, uh, it's really sleazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really the one point. Yeah. But, yes, but these seem to... I mean, it's also unfair. These are women who seem to exist in order to have that happen to them. I mean, <laughs> the way that the, those women seem to appear, right? There's no, you don't get a whiff of um, them not only taking offense, but, but expecting anything else than, than that. Well, that doesn't make it right. Ben. No, it doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it right. <laughs> But again, the deck is stacked a little bit. I would say I have another read here, which is that Judah is a sociopath. Well, then it wouldn't he, if he was a genuine sociopath, I mean, he I, wouldn't have the crisis of conscience. But again, he doesn't. He doesn't. He's a narcissistic sociopath, and he has to have the crisis of confidence in order to maintain his narcissism. He has to have... He has to brood. Because yes. if he doesn't brood... Then he's a then, bad person. Right. And he has to maintain his image for himself as a fundamentally good, valuable, I guess I, when person. I think... Okay. But I, when I think... When I, uh, narcissist is better. When I think of sociopath, I think of... Pat, I, mean, I think of Patrick Bateman. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I say... But he, He's a pathological narcissist. He's a narcissist to the degree. I mean, he's willing to kill someone for his own hide. That's pretty narcissistic, you would think. But not just to save himself, but to save his image of himself. Oh, God. Right? Yeah, well, that's why the rabbi sucks. That's why Sam Waterson stinks as a rabbi. Why does he stink? Because he's so flat. He's so not human. He's so saintly. He just doesn't really. He's like, eh. You don't don't really. Eh. And then he goes blind back to, right, so, right, yeah. because the rabbi doesn't need to see, because the rabbi hears. But look, if rabbi's here, so he goes blind, but he dances with his 
daughter and he smiles at his daughter's wedding. No, it not of course he does. It's not of course he does. It's because he can hear the music. He's blessed. Because he doesn't with need the, to see. He, exactly. But he doesn't lean on it. If you were Judah's rabbi, wouldn't you say the same thing? How would you behave any differently? You only think that Ben's a saint. I don't saint like I, I, because the, he's called a saint. He says when he never, says you, know, you got a break, that's the th- that's the conversation that bothers me the most. You caught a break, Judah. Good. Sometimes a little luck. I, I <laughs> that's my reaction to that scene. I don't like it because he's just too cloying. I don't like. Yeah, I don't like it. I don't. You know, sometimes a little luck, Judah. It's good for you. Oh, come on. I don't know. I don't know. I like Sam Warderson as an actor, but I didn't like that rabbi. Just because he just has to make everybody feel so good about themselves all the time? Well, that is a classic, unfortunate rabbi trait. Well, that's what I'm saying. If it were you, what would you do differently? If you were Judah's rabbi, what would you say that would be different? Well, Judah was lying to me. He was lying to the rabbi. But you, he doesn't know that. That's right. So the question is... And you wouldn't think of Judah Rosenthal that, no, he's lying no, to me. No, he's lying he because he's her. murdering me. Yeah, you wouldn't have thought that. Yeah, no, he'd probably have me fooled too. Yeah, so I think the problem is that that role is just, just nothing there. He's just a device. He can't see... Well, he obviously can't see something. The rabbi can't see something. I think probably you would feel better about that character if he had a moment of shit, I'm going blind, then I think maybe you would feel a little bit more sympathy for him. But you might feel there's a real person there. He, you never see that. It's interesting. I don't, that doesn't bother me. It's funny you say that. I, don't, I, I feel like <laughs> I, if I had to lose a sense, it would be sight. I mean, I would definitely sacrifice yeah, but you wouldn't be- sight before my eyes. I wouldn't be thrilled. You wouldn't be to, smiling all the way through No, it. but if I could dance with my daughter at her wedding, then maybe I don't need to see. While because you're... I can hear the Shema Yisroel, you know? So that might be sufficient. <laughs> but while you were seeing your ophthalmologist about the fact that you were going blind, you might not be in the best frame of yes, mind to yes, give him advice yes, about yes, his yes. problems. Yes, you might not that think, is such you might not think he's murdering his To mistress. me, that is such Chutzpah. Yeah, but it, but he loses, but he uses the rabbi. Yes, he's there as his doctor. He has a patient who is, is going blind, and what happens? He says he kind of. That's said, the most common freaking thing. Seriously? Yes, of course. Being a rabbi, you're always a rabbi. Yeah, yes. but have you been with yeah, a doctor? Of course. And the doctor says. Hold I've been on. with therapists who've done that. I've been like, give me I a minute. I have been with therapists who've done that. Of course. Yes, it's uncool. Yeah, it's not cool. No, I've been with therapists who go into these long things about this wedding that they went to and their family. I'm just like, dude, it's my therapy. Yes, happens all the time. That's terrible. Yes. Yeah, it's just part of the gig. Ugh. <laughs> um, but don't you think if I were fly on the wall, I would sense in you some degree of impatience while that was happening. <laughs> um, sure. Yeah, sure, but in course. Sam Waterstone, you don't sense any of <laughs> well, that. That's because he's a he's, saint. That's what I'm saying. That's what the problem that I have yes. is that he seems thrilled in the middle of the his No problem. He's going blind, but it's fine. Exactly. It's fine. You killed your mistress. It's fine. You got lucky. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. I got one piece of Jewish geography. Do it. 
I think we've had, you know, we've talked I don't about know any, I have no movie. connection to this movie. Well, yeah. I've only one connection is that I had a, a, a friend um, uh, a while back who told me a story about when he auditioned for Woody Allen and uh, for some role in a Woody Allen movie. And he went into the audition room and was informed that Woody Allen was there inside a cardboard box with a hole cut in it. So he couldn't watch the audition. They did his audition, and Woody Allen was there, apparently inside the cardboard box the whole time, never said anything. And, and that, was, that was how that went down. He didn't get the part? He did not get the part. What, did he, does he know for sure that Woody was well, in the box? Well, that's what I'm wondering. I mean, I haven't thought like, about I mean, that. You, it's like... I haven't thought about that story for, for... It works either way. You know, 20, 30 years. And I was just thinking about it, and I was like, was Woody Allen really inside that cardboard box? Or did he just not want to sit through all these auditions for every minor part in the movie? But you wanted the actor to feel like he was in the the room. Well, also, maybe you wanted the actor to be a little bit freaked out by the fact that Woody Allen was there in the room. You wanted to see how they performed under that kind of pressure. I think if the purpose of this podcast, which it wasn't, was to rehabilitate Woody Allen, we have failed No, he's a weird guy. Yes, he is. I wouldn't want to have lunch with him. Um, But... He has made it's hard to, a lot of good movies. It's hard a lot to. Of not so good movies. Is there a more important Jewish filmmaker than Woody Allen? Yes. Um, Steven Spielberg. Steven, Steven Spielberg, yes, is undoubtedly more important. He changed the entire landscape Industry. of movies and Hollywood with a single film. And oh, then was it Jaws? with Jaws, yeah. And then with very, you know, with E.T. Close Encounters after that. Time. So yes, nineteen forty one, of course. Yeah, no. He, the Steven Spielberg is definitely more important. There are probably other and Jewish too. No, absolutely yeah. Jewish. No, yeah. no question. Jewish. I think there may be more other. Woody Allen could be seen as not really that important. He's, I don't know where he fits among American he, filmmakers. That's not true. You do. You already compared him in this episode to Buster Keaton, Groucho yeah. Marx, and Charlie Chaplin. That is where he fits. No, he doesn't. Because Chaplin was a giant. Keaton how many was a did giant. Chap, how many movies did Chaplin actually make? Less than Woody. Well, yeah, but he, he, again, changed everything. Buster Keaton did things that nobody had ever done before, uh, changed things in his own way. I mean, the Marx Brothers, okay, maybe not. I mean, the Marx Brothers as, as film, uh, you, know, uh, you know, no, they're not important in terms of American film. They're important in terms of American comedy. I think that's the crew he hangs out with. I think that's the crew he hangs out. You can argue yes. that he's no chaplain, but I think he's hanging out with that crew. I think he's an important figure in American comedy. I think he did do uh, important, sort of groundbreaking stuff as a comedian, and then as a, you know, maybe comic filmmaker. But in terms of being important for movies, he doesn't really fit anywhere he, was there was there a up, rom-com before Annie hall of course there were tons and and 
I think he's just sui generis. I think, I, I don't know that he's there. He has, I mean, like Peter Bogdanovich kind of tried to make Woody Allen films. He wasn't successful. Didn't, you know, sometimes didn't really. Lots of people thought when Harry Met Sally was sort of a Woody Allen knockoff, but it turns out, no, it wasn't a Woody Allen knockoff. It was actually the beginning of something. Well, that's really my point. New. It was a Woody Allen knockoff. But it, but it, it wasn't. It was actually something different and something that ended up being more important in terms of its influence on movies. Than There's no When Harry Met Sally without any off. Okay, that is true. That is true. His movies are influential, but he's not... I mean, he's coming up in the 70s, but he's not like Scorsese or uh, Coppola or even Spielberg or Lucas. He doesn't fit. He's not a Hollywood guy. He's older than... All of them, even though it, he starts making movies around the same time. I don't know. Yes, he, I think you're right. He is influential, but he's not. I don't know. I don't. He's hundred years from now, more people know Groucho Marx or Woody Allen. Groucho Marx, I think. <sighs> Duck Soup is forever. I think it's a question. Is it, I think it's a question. People watching Annie Hall, kids watching Annie Hall today? I don't think they are. <laughs> I don't think they are either. They're, they're watching uh, Goodfellas. Yeah, and maybe Duck Soup. They're watching yeah. maybe Duck Soup. Yeah. They're watching, they're sure yeah. as heck watching Jaws well, so that's and Star interesting. Wars. So maybe, so maybe, maybe he's just, just the baby boomer, quintessential Jewish nebbishy 1970s baby boomer. Sort but of thing. But he's not, because he's not a boomer. Well, he's a little bit older. He's a lot older. Not a lot. Well, he's like Allen Ginsberg. He's like a lost generation one. Uh, a little bit younger than that, I think. Yeah, I don't know where he fits. He's, he, he makes a lot of great films. He makes a lot of okay films. He makes a lot of meh films. I don't think anybody does what he does. Who, what other filmmakers make a movie every year for like hmm, 15, 17, 19 million dollars? Nobody. I don't think there's anybody else like that. And who is able to do it and make these small, I mean, he's, and, you know, and it's not like he's a Gus Van Sant. Like he wants to, he makes movies that he'd like to people to watch. <laughs> I mean, most of his movies are not weird and quirky and for like a tiny, tiny audience. I mean, I think he makes... He tries. He tries to yeah. make sort of mainstream movies. He's just... I think he's just really interesting as a filmmaker because it looks like the only thing he wants to do is make as many Woody Allen movies as he can. You see, if you ever saw that documentary about him, he talks about how he has a... He has... He writes his ideas for the movies on his post-it notes, and then he puts them in his drawer. And when it's time for him to come out, the movie opens up his drawer, he pulls out a napkin, and the idea is ophthalmologist murders his mistress, and he makes the movie. But, I mean, especially for somebody who writes and directs, and often even, I mean, for many, many, many it's years, on, stars in the film, prolific. to do that every year, every year after year, since like 1969? That's crazy! I don't know how he does it. And sometimes he goes and he plays his clarinet. Yes, he does all light, the time. With no, his he's got a regular Dixieland. Band. I never went. I've never seen. He's not that good. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's a, a hobby. It's a novelty. You know, it's a, a hobby. novelty act. 
Well, a good episode. Fun to talk. Yeah. Good movie. What are we doing next? All right. I chose the last two. I chose Inglorious and Crimes and Misdemeanors. You've got to choose something you love. Something you love. Ben. A movie that I love? Love. Well, I love a lot of movies. It's something like a Mike Nichols movie or something that you just can like geek out over. Uh, have we not done a Mike Nichols? Have we done Goodbye Columbus? Even Mike Nichols may be more important. No. Oh, no. I'm going to get into a fight here. No. <laughs> the Graduate was pretty important. It was pretty important. Uh, think about what you want to do. Think about okay. it. It should be something you love. I will think about a movie that I love. I don't think it'll be But that if I had to, to put, something. if I had to put a uh, canon, I'm going to take Annie Hall. Not. Would you put and that I again? Only, if I, have to, I only put one. And I'd, well, I'm not saying if you didn't have to choose one, if you could have more than one, would you put yeah, Zelig? Yeah, I'd, I'd want to rewatch Zelig. That was so for the listeners, for Ben's brother who's listening, uh, <laughs> Ben's mother who's listening, um, I would say. The Jewish that, fame super famous. Yes, that's right. I would say, you know, we wanted to choose a Woody Allen movie, and this was the most obvious Jewish Woody Allen movie. But I think in hindsight, uh, I would like to see Zelig again and then decide if I was going to choose Zelig or Annie Hall. I think Zelig is just so, I just, that really resonates as the Jewish experience for me in a lot of ways. And, and it's just fascinating the way he approached it. Well, and that is, everything about it is sort of very interesting and groundbreaking. I mean, it's... <laughs> I mean, Forrest Gump was well, the same yeah, kind exactly. of thing. Yeah, it's like right? a, that Years mockumentary later. type of thing. That's, well, not uh, just mockumentary, but putting him in different yeah, yeah. sort of historical uh, events and and stuff. I mean, Forrest Gump is basically and just I, a, I, I, what know, I love about Zelig, Zelig. That's right. What I love about Zelig is how unconscious his transformation is. I think that's so fascinating. It's like we Jews just instantly morph into these characters without even being fully conscious that we're doing it. That I relate to that. I understand. I understand that. So that's interesting. But just it's hard not to choose Annie Hall. It uh, when looking back, it's, it it becomes hard not to choose that movie because it is his time. best. I should, I should. I should watch. It is again. his best, and Diane Keaton is awesome. He's kind of always great. <laughs> yeah, but she's so. I mean, you ever seen Diane Keaton put in a bad performance, or even just sort of a middling one? She's always just. You just always want to watch her. She's just great. Have you seen The Godfather Part 3? <laughs> was she in that? <laughs> was she? She must have been, no. No. No, because, she wasn't. And you know what? It's a good... I, I've erased yeah. <laughs> all memory of that film. I mean, in my mind, there are just two Godfather movies. <laughs> That's it. No, um, Kay's got to be in the... Maybe she's not. She probably does show up. Everybody I don't know. Maybe does. she's not. Except I, Robert Duvall. Isn't it terrible? Well. Have you not seen it? No, isn't it terrible that we don't know? Robert Duvall, he, they didn't hire him back. So they, yes, they got too George much money. Uh, Hamilton. Oh, it was Jeez. terrible. Pay him the money. Was that what it was? They wouldn't pay Duvall money? Yeah, I think he was asking for. What a disaster. I think he was asking for too much. He's the best. Oh my God, yes. He's like my favorite character. Well, Tom Hagen, in, in, in absolutely. In those movies. Tommy Hagen is yeah, the best. Absolutely. He doesn't fit, but he's the concierge. Yeah. Um, it's been a while since I saw Godfather. It's been a long time. That is a long movie. Yeah. Not Jewish, I don't think, but yet is about the immigrant experience. It definitely is. There is nothing Jewish. Well, Jews and Italians 
in this country are very close. Immigrants, food, live next to each other in New York. Literally, um, cheek by jowl in Lower Manhattan. So, um, I always went to Chanchonaro's feast when I lived in. (laughs) Did you really? Oh yeah. Oh, you didn't? No, I never did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It was great. You can, you know. And yeah, I mean, Little Italy and Lower East Side are like an extra. All right. Well, All right, so you'll choose the movie, something you love. All right. Well, we've done crimes and misdemeanors. We have. We've covered Woody Allen, and we can put him to bed. Well, maybe. We can come back to him. We can come back to him. As you said, there are other, maybe even, probably even better Woody Allen movies. It's not like we can't do a director more than once if we want to. Um, but I don't know if I'll be coming, we'll be coming back to him real soon. But this has been The Jewish Frame. I'm Ben Shin. I'm Danny. And we'll talk to you next time. Take care. Thank you.